Welcome to InBeta, where we discuss the big questions around human rights and digital age. I'm Charles Bradley, GBD's Executive Director. Twitter recently took the unprecedented step of placing a content warning on a tweet by President Donald Trump about the ongoing protests in America, arguing that it contravened Twitter's policy on content which incites violence. This caused a stir, to put it lightly, and once again it's put the spotlight on the highly contentious question of how platforms moderate content on their platforms and negotiate that often tricky balance of respecting freedom of expression and ensuring the safety of users. I thought this would be a great time to jump on a call with today's guest, Barry Sander. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. Um, well, for our listeners, it'd be great to get you to sort of introduce yourself and, and, and your interesting work. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm currently a fellow at Findesal Gatilio Vargas um, in Rio de Janeiro. Um, my work for the past few years has really focused on the interrelationship between international law and digital technology with a particular focus on social media platforms and uh, digital threats to democracy. Um, before that, actually, my sort of longer term background is more general international law, but also a focus on international criminal law. Um, and that's what I did my PhD on at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Amazing. And it's great to have you um, on the show. And it's uh, always great to collaborate with you, um, as we have done over the, over the last few years. Um, I wanted to come to that sort of first point around sort of the platforms and and uh, what's going on at the moment. Obviously, we're living in uh, a very interesting time, both with the sort of COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, sort of as well as the ongoing uh, protests in the US and globally are sort of provoking um, together sort of rapid shifts in sort of policy from platforms. Um, I was wondering whether you've been sort of seeing how this might be working in favour of uh, stronger respect for human rights um, by platforms. Um, are we seeing them taking a human rights approach um, to dealing with these uh, big policy questions at this particular time? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I certainly think what, it's, what, what these current issues are highlighting is you know, our dependency on private platforms as channels for public discourse. And with each new, new sort of crisis or headline that comes into the public view, whether it be COVID-19 or a tweet from Donald Trump, I think we're just constantly reminded of how important these platforms are to the public discourse and how important it is for them, to us uh, who are looking at these processes, to creatively come up with ways to align their practices with the public interest, because they are private companies after all, um, and they don't necessarily have incentives to uh, align their practices with human rights and the public interest. Um, now, in terms of you know what these platforms have been doing, um, we've seen there have certainly been some shifts um, in, in recent months, especially um, in response to COVID-19 crisis. Uh, so we've seen uh, for example, partnerships formed between platforms and public health institutions and the World Health Organizations, uh, World Health Organization. We've seen uh, collaborations between the platforms themselves, um, but we've also seen, and I think this is um, most interesting, a uh, sort of tightening of uh, the moderation rules on some of these platforms. Um, and for example, we've seen Twitter take uh, a much harsher stance against state actor speech than it has in the past. 
Um, for example, it was it proved willing to remove videos posted by Brazilian President Bolsonaro, um, which was uh, spreading disinformation about COVID-19. Um, and we've also seen platforms, uh, you know, put out new policies or apply them in new ways in relation to paid content as well. They've been more willing to ban certain commercial ads, for example, uh, specific categories like face masks, medical face masks. Um, and also to offer free ads to public health institutions. So these policies are definitely um, the, these policies are definitely evolving in relation to the crisis. But I think there are a number of continuities or even enhanced challenges that also come uh, from uh, the, the COVID nineteen moment. Um, first of all, there's there remains a, you know sort of a lack of transparency um, over uh, the data which uh, platforms have. Um, we know, for example, that there ex there's a lot of experimentation going on uh, in, amongst these platforms in terms of how they manage uh, the architecture of their sites um, and how they you know, uh, change the application of their moderation rules. But what's lacking and what remains lacking um, is access to the data to see exactly how these different tweaks are actually affecting the online experience. Um, and I think you know, it was Sarah Roberts who referred to this as a logic of opacity, and I think that, that very much remains. Um, a second challenge is, is the challenge of, you know, platform dependency on automated processes. Um, you know, uh, studies have shown and the platforms readily admit that these uh, automated tools which they use to moderate their platforms are no substitute for uh, more nuanced, context-aware human moderation. Um, and the COVID-19 crisis has led to greater reliance um, on those tools. So, you know, I think that when we look at the impact of recent recent events, um, we can see a number of changes, but we can also see uh, a number of continuities. Absolutely. And I think that it's, it's so right to sort of point to that, um, that data or lack of data point on uh, backing up some of these decisions and policies being made um, by, by the platforms. Um, one thing that I'm particularly concerned about is the response from platforms to deal with the situation as it is of today and to create policies and to shift to how they enforce those policies and um, to deal with the sort of the global health pandemic as it is right now um, without the creation of sort of um, sunset clauses or or any sort of um, review or um, uh, remedy sort of pr processes put in place uh, for, for those policies. Um, do you think that there's a risk of you know, moving too fast from these platforms um, at this time? And, and what would sort of that greater data that you've been talking about help uh, sort of in mitigating that risk? Well, I think it's important to, you know, take a step back and first of all, also look at, you know, when there, whenever there's a crisis, whether it be COVID-19 or a natural disaster, um, that crisis can provide, it often provides a kind of focal point for the attention of, uh, whether it be civil society groups, the general public, politicians, uh, we, we all focus on that crisis and how that crisis is affecting uh, particular policies. But I think it's a useful moment um, when this happens to recall um, a piece, one of my uh, favourite pieces um, by Hilary Charlesworth, um, who talks about international law as a discipline of crisis. Um, and uh, you know, Professor Charlesworth talks about how international lawyers revel in a good crisis, which often provides a focal point for the development of the discipline. But in focusing on these crisis moments, there's a risk 
um, that we the that our responses, the international law, um, that our regulatory responses become a mask for more structural issues that underpin everyday life. Um, so I think it's important to also, you know, have this message that we shouldn't allow the kind of headline issues that inevitably arise during a crisis situation to crowd out the more structural problems in societies across the world, which are in danger at times in these moments of being crowded out. A lot of the problems that we see on online platforms are rooted in much wider societal problems, um, and we shouldn't lose sight of that fact. Um, now, in terms of um, the dangers of you know this kind of reactive approach of social media platforms uh, to a crisis situation, I, I completely agree. I think what we as you know uh, commentators and civil society uh, really need to push for in the coming years is the movement away from this reactive approach to a much more structured framework, so that when these particular crises happen, the processes, the accountability mechanisms are in place so that the solutions can be worked through in a structured manner. And one of those frameworks, and one which I've been looking at recently, is this, you know, this idea of a human rights-based approach. Absolutely. And, and obviously something that we, that we focus on and the risks that you've mentioned there are the reasons why we uh, sort of take the international human rights framework as... as um, Sort of the starting point for for a lot of our work. Um, I'm actually interested in this because recently the UN Special Rapporteur David Kay suggested that you know Twitter's recent actions on the tweet uh, by by Donald Trump uh, um, quote can be understood in light of Twitter's renewed attention uh, to the human rights as a as a framework. And I think that you you know your work recently, as you're saying, has been sort of weighing the the benefits and the limitations of using this framework in the context of, of, of content moderation. Um, I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit more about those findings and, and how they can help us interpret uh, these sort of these current developments. Sure, yeah. So um, I've just come out with a paper which really sort of takes a... Um, uh, tries to take a critical, critical look at uh, a human rights-based approach to content moderation. Um, the paper really builds off the work, um, a, a sort of a landmark report, which was delivered by David Kay in 2018, which itself drew on a wide range of civil society inputs. I think Global Partners Digital um, was one of the main groups which contributed to that process. But also my colleagues here at FGV, Luca Belli, Nico Zingales, have also done important work on human rights-based approaches. Um, and really what that, that human rights-based approach uh, speaks to is it relies on the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and its framework of protect, respect, remedy. So under this framework, states have a duty to protect against human rights abuses by third parties, uh, corporations have a responsibility to respect human rights, um, and both states and businesses have responsibilities to ensure that victims have adequate access to remedies. Now, my paper focuses on primarily the corporate responsibility to respect human rights, but I think it's important to remember that a human rights-based approach, in order for it to be fully effective, the other pillars are also um, vital. 
Now, in thinking through content moderation issues and the challenges on content of content moderation posed uh, on social media platforms, I think the value um, of a human rights-based approach is that it provides this kind of organizing, holistic framework that social media platforms can rely on um, to guide the definition of their particular policies and processes. It also provides a sort of a common conceptual language, um, you know, identifying certain thresholds for when rights, particular rights have been interfered with, and a series of tests to determine when rights may be restricted. And I think, but I think it's really important to make clear, um, you know, the limits of what this framework does, because I mean, that's key to how it works. So what it doesn't do is it doesn't always dictate a specific or uniform outcome. It's really about providing a framework for platforms to assess whether their human rights impacts are justifiable with due sensitivity to the communities they nurture and the different contexts in which they operate. It's not a silver bullet for all the harms that arise online. It can't magic away the challenges of scale posed by the sheer volume of content posted on social media platforms. Um, it can't magic away the inevitable errors that occur in the content moderation processes. Um, and, you know, as it applies to companies at the moment, it is, you know, it is being applied at present on a kind of self, if it's being applied at all, it's being applied on a self-regulatory basis. Um, and that means that, you know, apart from the kind of social pressure that's being brought to bear by, you know, civil society groups, general, general uh, public, um, it's really up to the platforms to apply um, these these relevant principles of their own volition, and and you know when those uh, standards when they come into conflict with the commercial interests of the platforms, uh, platforms may be resistant to actually adhere to those standards. Um, so there's you know an inevitable challenge in the enforcement of the human rights based approach. Um, but but finally, I think you know what my my paper mainly focuses on is the challenge of translating these human rights principles, which were developed primarily to apply to states, translating it from that context into particular rules, processes, and procedures tailored to platform moderation contexts. And that's a real challenge, I think, because there's a lot of complexity and it's a lot of challenges in that translation. Absolutely. And I, I, I completely agree and think there's a lot of... A lot of more a lot more work uh, sort of intellectual work that needs to be done um in the sort of thinking through those those nuances and how how they apply i mean as an organization that worked um tirelessly at the time to support the then special rapporteur frank larue in establishing the the resolution that applies human rights online as they do offline um we sort of saw that as a sort of a, you know a landmark sort of victory um, but I think actually intellectually it's quite sloppy in that it doesn't understand the, the or, or deal with the things that you've started to talk about in terms of scale, in terms of the role of the private sector vis-a-vis -vis the, the um, um, state actors, in terms of uh, permanence, in terms of lack of uh, traceability or anonymity online, etc. These are all yeah. new nuances that have been brought about by uh, technology that... Um, were never thought through or, or even predict, you know, impossible for them to be predicted at a time when the, um, 
uh, when the the original sort of you know international human rights framework and the UDHR and ICPR etc were um, were created and 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 negotiated. In the, and in terms of the that last point around your point around the sort of translation of those um, the, that framework from the the the, the state uh, to to the private sector, it comes back to your sort of first point around us understanding the role that these that these private companies have in public discourse, which was never a, um, a role that companies had previously. It was always um, the, 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 role, the role of the state. Um, I wonder whether there are um, particular limitations or particular opportunities um, that should be sort of explored in thinking through how this, this, this rights framework would and could and should apply um, to the private sector, understanding the increased role and responsibility that they have um, um, on, on public discourse and, and free speech more broadly? Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, in terms of opportunities, there is a lot of room here for experimentation. So, for example, uh, one of the standards under human rights law is that, you know, freedom of expression should, uh, if it's going to be restricted, it should be the least intrusive restrictive measure should be applied. Um, now, in in you know normal offline uh, fora, there are less options. You know there are less possibilities as to the ways you can restrict freedom of expression. But online, there's a much more diverse array of op- options of what you what these platforms can do in terms of how they interact with other people's content. And you know to some extent, I think we saw this with uh, Twitter's recent responses to Donald Trump's tweets because you know Twitter made. A, what I believe a fairly nuanced uh, decision to, um, uh, you know, affix a notice to Donald Trump's tweet, reduce its visibility, uh, reduce the ability of uh, people to reply, for people to retweet. I think you could only retweet if you yourself added a comment. Um, And, you know, this shows that there are far more uh, tools, shall we say, um, that platforms have access to in terms of how they address uh, problematic or potentially, you know, harmful content online. So that's definitely there's definitely uh, room for experimentation, um, but there are challenges um, because. I mean, I guess the biggest is the fact that, you know, a platform like Facebook, for example, operates in so many different countries around the world. Um, all of these countries and also communities within each of these countries, they use different languages, they have different cultural norms, um, they have different expectations. Um, you know, applying nuanced human rights approaches in all these contexts is a major challenge. Um, the other thing uh, I would say is also, if you look at a platform like Facebook, and this is a point I think um, Alex Stamos has, has been making, mm. you know, it's not just one product, it's not just one service. Facebook has different spaces on it, it has a news feed, it has groups, it has messenger. Um, and each of these spaces, um, you know, potentially uh, re- may be subject to d- different degrees of moderation, um, depending on how one interprets uh, human rights standards. So, um, you know, there's a challenge even within a single uh, platform like Facebook, there's a challenge of all the different types of space that you're actually managing. Um, so, yeah, so I think there are opportunities to be creative here, but there are also uh, challenges. And I think, you know, that last point on challenges is key. And this is something that I, I know that, that David Kay has been has also said is that, you know, a human rights based approach 
uh, to content moderation is difficult. No one said that this would be a simple solution. But what it does do is it does provide a framework, um, a guiding uh, conceptual language to enable platforms to work through the relevant issues in a much more structured way than they have perhaps in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's the something that we've been sort of working for is sort of the uniformity of approach by the different platforms and, you know, ins- ensuring that if, if collectively these platforms hold the, you know, the, um, the whole uh, sort of marketplace of ideas and public space and uh, for, 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 for free speech online, that there should be some sort of uh, consistency in how uh, that's approached and, and some um, consistency in interpretations of some of the different um, uh, restrictions and, and processes as well. Um, just we're, we're coming to sort of the end, but I really wanted just to get your sort of thoughts very quickly on uh, on one sort of um, piece of sort of governance innovation that's, that's happening right now, which is on the uh, oversight board um, and also the, um, which has obviously come, you know, come into uh, the public eye very recently because of the new members that have been announced, but also um, given the, you know, aforementioned tweet um, uh, and then the uh, the the uh, sort of conversation between uh, U.S. President and 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 uh, Mark Zuckerberg around the role of some sort of board like this. I wanted just to get your sense on on the actual board itself and and what sort of role it could or should be playing um, to deal with uh, some of these some of these uh, challenges, given that it's still a um, sort of a self regulatory sort of model that the companies are applying, and this only. Um, this continues to be in in that sort of self-regulation sort of space. Yes, well, I, I think the, you know, the Facebook's oversight board, you know, illustrates sort of the challenges and the risks of a self-regulatory approach because on its face, um, it, it doesn't really look like it's going to do very much. Its jurisdiction is incredibly narrow. Um, I think it's limited to referrals from Facebook and uh, content that has been removed um, for violation of content policies, um, and you know, therefore, it you know, it doesn't cover at least as 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 designed currently. It doesn't cover um, or it doesn't operate in relation to uh, harmful content that has been left up. So we can think of you know, hate speech in Myanmar, which caused so many problems in that country. Um, it won't tackle those t- types of decisions. It won't tackle decisions over the ranking of content. It won't be able to, you know, audit Facebook's algorithm. Um, so, you know, its its powers are relatively limited. Um, and, you know, one of the things which I talk about in my paper is that there is a there is a risk that platforms may co-opt the language of human rights, co-opt the language of public responsibility to legitimise minor reforms at the expense of more structural or systemic changes. Now, on its face, one could argue that, you know, this this oversight board, which has been set up by Facebook, is merely a public relations exercise, a distraction um, that doesn't really do very much. On the other hand, um, they've established it now. They've set up, uh, you know, the members have been appointed. And really, you know, where this will go is very much also up to um, both the members of the board, we've seen in you know other international courts, for example, that they can have you know kind of, kind of slow beginnings, but then they can push uh, their way into a much more expansive uh, reach. Um, and I think that you know, with civil society groups and other commentators working on this, so long as the oversight board is not framed as 
the solution and is viewed and is carefully framed that it's only part of a much, much larger tapestry of policies and processes that are needed to generate accountability on social media platforms, um, then you know the risk of this being just a just a, a piece of legitimation for for Facebook's reputation um, can be minimised. So I, I think it's really important about you know how we frame what the oversight board is and what it's set up to do, and provided we provide the relevant framing, um, you know it, it probably does have potential to at least you know push in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, coming back to some of your points earlier about the, the different tools um, at uh, companies' disposal and, and all those sort of other sort of enforcement um, questions have to become, have to come in scope of, of, of the board uh, for it to make uh, sort of like meaningful impact on, on the platform and really drive, um, drive it to those outcomes that we're, that we're hoping uh, for, it, for it to have. Um, Anyway, we, we're at time. Barry, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast and, and uh, for, for sharing all this amazing insight. We'll be sure to include a link um, to your, your articles um, uh, in the podcast online um, and hope to have you on the show again soon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Barry. Before we close, I wanted to highlight some important and ongoing advocacy by the African Internet Rights Alliance, a collective of nine civil society groups, including GBD Partners, CEPESA, Paradigm Initiative and Kicktonet. The Alliance has been raising serious concerns about the current application of disinformation-related laws in Kenya and Nigeria, which it argues are being misused to criminalise legitimate free expression amid a general suspension of civil liberties during the COVID-19 pandemic. Last week, the Alliance called on special rapporteurs at both the African Commission on Human and People's Rights and the United Nations to intervene and demand that the Kenyan and Nigerian governments place a moratorium on prosecutions under these laws and drop charges that have already been imposed on individuals. We've dropped some links below the podcast where you can find out more about what's happening. For the broader context of this story, have a listen to our recent interview on this podcast with Sapace's Ashna Kalamera, in which she breaks down how COVID is affecting the enforcement of disinformation laws across Africa. The link for that is also down below. Until next time, goodbye.